Welcome to Sound Purpose with Brian Thompson, pastor of Purpose Church in Firestone, Colorado. Pastor Brian is currently teaching through the New Testament book of Ephesians. Join us now as he opens this life-changing letter by Paul the Apostle to the church in Ephesus and beyond. Father, we know that it's not just now that we're supposed to worship you in song. It's not just now that we're supposed to bring our praises before you. That's supposed to be a part of our everyday life, moment by moment. Lord, I pray that our response to your word right now would be a sweet, sweet offering to you, that it would be a sacrifice of praise. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open our hearts to what you have for us to hear this morning and that we would receive it in all of its power and all of its glory and all of its beauty and whatever you want to say to us, that we would receive it and apply it. Be glorified as we look into your word, not just to gain more knowledge, Lord, but to have it transform the very way that we live as we come to understand you better and experience you more. Let it be so in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. Will you take out your Bibles this morning and join me in our text? It's Ephesians 4. I started a new mini-series last week called The Christian's Walk. As we go through this last part, this last half of Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to find a lot of information about what it looks like for us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. The Holy Spirit moves Paul here to declare what it looks like for the believer to live out the faith we profess, the life we are given in Christ and through Christ. And really, to understand Christ, to learn Christ, to know Christ is to live Him. As believers, there's really no uh, indication in the Scriptures that by Jesus or anyone else that we're invited to just take in knowledge and never have it affect who we are. Always the understanding of knowledge, the understanding of, of experience of who God is, requires a response. It expects a response. To learn Christ is to live Christ. The learning and the living must not be separate from one another. If we do so, James would say we're deluding ourselves. Do not be merely hearers of the word, but be doers of it. Because if you're merely a hearer, you're, hearer, you're just deluding yourself. Hear the word, do the word. It's a part of that progressive process of sanctification, of becoming more like Jesus that we talked about just a few moments ago. Last week, we focused on Ephesians 4, 17 through 19, and how an ungodly way of life, the way of the unbelieving Gentile, is not worthy it is not in accordance with God's will. And so let's read that text from last week to give us context for our consideration of our study this week. Paul says in Ephesians 4, and oh, by the way, I forgot to ask, if you don't have a Bible, we have some for you. Once in a while, I miss it. Um, I'm just so excited to have Dave here that I think I'm just kind of charging through some things this morning. By the way, wasn't that a blessing? Thank you, Dave, and thank you, team, for leading us in worship. If you happen to come this morning without your Bible, raise your hand and Greg will make sure you have a copy of it. Uh, I really believe that there's value in actually holding it in our hand. 
Um, and I'm not one of those that thinks there's as much value in holding it on our, our uh, phone. There's something about just the page and holding it because we can... If you will, I don't know what your Bible looks like, but mine's just kind of like a spiritual journal. It, it's really, I've tried this on my phone, and it really makes it hard to read everything else. Um, there's something beautiful about being able to hold it, open it, cry our tears into it, um, celebrate over it, lay our face in it sometimes as we need to. But um, I encourage you to always bring your Bible, and if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take the one that was just handed to you as a gift. Well, in Ephesians 4, the Holy Spirit moves Paul to write first in the first verse, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, urge you strongly to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. And then in verse 17, he says, So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of their hardness of heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. That's what we discussed last night. But then he says in verse 20, But you did not learn Christ in that way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Well, honestly, the remarkable nature of all that's said here is significant enough that we're not going to even remotely get through it all this morning. I, I knew as I sat down to this, we needed to sort of lay it out, but this is like part one of part two of, <laughs> it gets a little good. We're in like a series and a series and a series. It's like Ezekiel, wheel within a wheel. Um, there's just no way to lay it out for us all in the hour and a half that I intend to take right now. So, um, that was a joke. Uh, we're going to go through just the first verse, verse 20, and get through that this morning um, uh, and, and discuss next week even more about what it looks like to learn Christ and live Christ. But let's wade into it together and see what we learn today and what we apply. Paul says immediately, he uses a contrast word. That word, but is a word you don't want to miss within the text, because anytime you see it, you're realizing there's a contrast that's being made. And he says to them, but you did not learn Christ in that way. In regard to the way that the Gentiles walk, and by the way, the way that we all used to walk when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, right? Ephesians 2, 1. In that way, Christ is not learned. That is the way of the world, it is ungodly, and we do not learn Christ in that way. A contrast is being made between the way of the Gentile and the way of the Christian, the walk of the unbeliever and that of the believer. Taken in context, one could interpret what Paul is saying here as, walk in a manner worthy of your calling in Christ, not as the unbelieving Gentiles walk in their ungodly and unworthy way, but in the way of Christ, the way that you learned the way that it was presented to you when you received the gospel. 
Not in a licentious way, not in a way that says, hey, your sin doesn't matter, don't sweat it, just do whatever you want, but add this to your life. His name is Jesus. That's not the gospel. That's not biblical. And I want you to note here, he says, but you did not learn Christ in this way. Note that he uses the word Christ, not Jesus' name. The word Christ is a title which means Messiah or Savior. And clearly in context, Savior does not mean merely Savior from the punishment of sin alone, but from its power to control us and have us live under its power and at its whim. To have us live in the former way we once walked as unbelievers, just as the Gentiles still do. That's not what he's saying. When he uses the name Christ there, he's talking about Christ as Savior, Jesus as our Savior, our Messiah, the one to save us from our sin. You did not learn Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, in the way of the Gentile. Why? Because there is no room in Christ for ungodliness. Jesus doesn't welcome us to live in sin. Amen? Now, real quickly, before anybody's freaking out, that doesn't mean that that we don't sin. Right? Because if anyone says that he hasn't sinned, he makes God out to be a liar, and the truth is not in us. That's in 1 John. So we're not saying perfection here, but we're saying to live a life continually in sin and to live that out as our way of life, ungodliness, is not the way that we learned Christ, and that is not the way that we are invited to live. Jesus doesn't welcome us to live in our sin. Yes, he was considered a friend of tax collectors and sinners, But make no mistake, he went to the cross for sin. Jesus is as serious about sin as the torture he endured on the cross to remove it. God the Father is so serious about sin, he sent his only beloved son to die to save us from it. How can we live in it any longer as if it doesn't matter? Anybody that belittles the issue of sin belittles Christ's sacrifice on the cross. We have to understand that. That is, the, that is sort of the, the, the gospel of our age, that you don't have to worry about your sin. God is just so enamored with you, he can hardly see anything else except the good things of you. And by the way, Jesus helps you out with that too. That's not the gospel. God is so serious about sin that he sent his only beloved son to die to save us from it. Jesus died to purify sin from his sheep and to give us victory over it and someday to remove us from its very presence forever and ever. Jesus died to save us from the punishment of sin, but also the power of sin that sin had over us when we were slaves to unrighteousness. But someday we will also be saved from the presence of sin. Amen and hallelujah. That's heaven. It's not now, but that's what we're headed for. Jesus isn't light on sin. The reality is that he will damn people to hell for it if they haven't received the gift of salvation that he provides uh, through his blood on the cross. Last week I made the point that not all walks are safe, that the worldly, ungodly way of the Gentile would end in hell, which clearly indicates there must be and will be a difference between the walk of the Gentile and the walk of the Christian or the Christ one. I said last week that if you claim Christ, but that is as far as you go with him, mere lip service, then repent. Leave that sin. 
Truly come to Jesus and be gloriously saved. Turn your life over to him. Turn from the worldly way and receive Christ in faith and be made new and walk like it. The unsaved and ungodly Ephesians were living very sinful lives simply by living in accord with their culture. Ephesus was a source of all sorts of ungodliness. They worshipped a goddess that involved pagan immorality of every kind, typically sexual. That's how it was lived out in sexual immorality. Do you suppose that faith in Jesus merely saved them from the consequences of the sin, the punishment, and not the power of it over their lives? That's not what Paul or any, any writer in the, the Gospels is preaching, right? No. They and we are not welcome to merely accept Jesus with our lips and see no change in our lives. Salvation in Christ is a relationship with Jesus Christ that saves not only from hell in eternity, but also from the hell we once lived in when we were slaves to unrighteousness in our ungodly Gentile way of walking. Do not suppose that a person comes to Jesus without repenting of sin. That's what concerns me. We, we are giving people an idea of the gospel that is not rooted in Scripture. It is the idea that you can come to Jesus and it affects nothing else in your life. You're just good to go when you die. That's not the message that we're receiving here and it's not the message you find anywhere in the scriptures. That's not salvation. That's dead religion. When Jesus called us out of darkness into light, he called us into relationship with him, and he isn't okay with sin. I know I'm beating that one, but frankly, our culture needs to hear it loud and clear. He calls us to follow him in life-giving relationship that puts sin to flight in ever-increasing measure in our lives. That's the process of sanctification, becoming more holy. It's a process we have to surrender to. We invite Jesus to show us, where's my sin? What needs to be dealt with? What needs to be confessed? What needs to be repented of? It reminds me of David's prayer in, in Psalm 139, 23 and 24, when he said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my inmost thoughts, and see if there is any evil or wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting." Then and now, it's still a part of our sanctification, becoming more like Jesus. We were justified, we are being sanctified, and someday we will be glorified. Justification always brings birth to sanctification, which always leads to glorification. That's the process that we're in. A so-called gospel that doesn't call the recipient to repentance isn't a gospel at all. They aren't being saved from anything, but fooled into believing all is well, simply because they took up attendance at church, said a prayer, even though nothing changed. Jesus isn't learned or received in this way, Paul says. You did not learn Christ in that way. MacArthur puts it this way, The ways of God and the ways of the world are not compatible. The idea, promoted by some who claim to be evangelicals, that a Christian does not have to give up anything or change anything when he becomes a Christian is nothing less than diabolical. And what does that word diabolical spring from? Diabolos, which is devil. It means 
belonging to or so evil as to recall the devil. That's not the gospel work. That's not the work of real teachers of the gospel. That notion, under the pretense of elevating God's grace and of protecting the gospel from works righteousness, will do nothing but send many people confidently down the broad way that Jesus said leads to destruction. From the human side, salvation begins with repentance, a change of mind and action regarding sin, self, and God. John the Baptist, Jesus, and the apostles began their ministries with the preaching of repentance. The very purpose of receiving Christ is to be saved from this perverse generation, Acts 2.40. And no one is saved who does not repent and forsake sin. Repentance does not save us. That's important to say. That would be putting the cart before the horse. Repentance is a part of sanctification and justification. But you can't repent until the Holy Spirit brings you to life in Christ. Then you come to faith in Jesus and repent from your sin. Repentance does not save us, but God, and uh, this word cannot, anytime you say God cannot, I freak out just a little bit. I just do. So let's just say God will not save us from sin of which we are unwilling to let go. Not cool in saying God can't. God can do whatever he wants to do that's not sin. Amen? So there, MacArthur, I'll just edit your word. <laughs> just kidding. To hold on to sin is to refuse God, to scorn his grace, and to nullify faith. No Christian is totally free from the presence of sin in this life, but in Christ, he is willingly freed from his orientation to sin. He slips and falls many times, but the determined direction of his life is away from sin. I think that says it well. Remember those strong and sobering words of Jesus in Matthew 7, 13 through 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and he's speaking of eternal destruction there, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Jesus is the gate. Let's be sure of that. Faith in him brings salvation, and salvation brings a new way, though imperfect way, of living. Learning Jesus in the context of Ephesians 4.20 means coming to know and receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior as they did when they learned Christ. When a person comes to know Jesus like this in salvation by God's grace through faith in what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross, a changed life follows. So Christians living ungodly, worldly lives, the Holy Spirit says, no, but you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. Now, the if of verse 21 is not conditional in the text. You know, no, no, when I say an if, a conditional if, it's sort of like we say to our kids, if you eat your beans, you may have dessert. If you don't eat your beans, you may not have dessert. This is more like an if of, if indeed you have eaten your beans, and I know that you have, you therefore get dessert. It's, a, it's this has happened. This is the reality. The Greek indicates that Paul is making an emphatic statement indicating that indeed they have learned, they have heard, and they have been taught in Christ. Now, what do heard and uh, taught mean here? Well, it can't mean that they literally heard him and physically were taught by Jesus, right? Because these folks are in Asia Minor. They were won to Christ by Paul on his missionary journeys, and Paul himself didn't actually hear Jesus teach or preach. 
he, it, in the flesh, it was in his resurrected body after his death, burial, and resurrection that Paul came to know Christ, right? On the road to Damascus. So these folks didn't actually literally hear and were not literally taught by Jesus. No, it was in Christ that this happened. So what does he mean that they learned Christ, heard him, and were taught in him? The context in the Greek indicate that this is speaking of conversion to Jesus Christ and a relationship which follows. This is not merely mental assent to doctrinal truth. I had the experience of being at a funeral once down in Denver, right near Iliff School of Theology, which is kind of a misnomer, um, and if you know what Iliff stands for. And I remember hearing the preacher preach and realizing he actually doesn't know Jesus. He had, he had a doctorate from Iliff. He knew the doctrine, but he didn't know the Jesus of the doctrine. And it was really rather remarkable. They thought, oh my, this man is speaking at a funeral about things he doesn't even know personally. It's sort of like the... the um, travel agent who hands out brochures to places they've never been. And it kind of struck me, and I thought, I, I need to be praying for him. This is, this is speaking of real knowledge that follows, uh, the, knowledge that follows with relationship. It's not merely mental assent. While those doctrines are necessary, no doubt, and you can't be saved without understanding them, this speaks of the believer's conversion to Christ by faith and the life that follows, the justification that comes from faith and the sanctification in him that follows a relationship with the living Savior. Learning Christ is living Christ. You can't truly know him and not live for him. You can pick up understanding, but this is talking about living in a uh, living relationship with Jesus. There is no real knowledge of Christ outside of relationship with Christ through the Holy Spirit. You don't learn, just learn truths about Christ as a believer. You come to learn and know him personally as you hear him in the Spirit and are taught in him through the Word and through the Spirit. It is relational at its core and at its completion. Relationship, not mere religion. Well, then he says, just as truth is in Jesus. Now, anytime you're reading through the text and you see the words just as in the New Testament, take serious note of it. It is emphatic and definitive. Paul is saying, you did not learn Christ in an ungodly way just as surely as truth is in Jesus. In other words, since truth is in Jesus, you didn't learn Christ in an ungodly way. There's no way to learn Christ in that way. Just as truth is found in Christ, you ought to be walking worthily as you have learned him, heard him, and been taught in Christ, in living relationship with him. And truth is in Jesus. He uses the name, not the title, the historical man, the God-man, the Son of God. This is the same point he makes to the believers in the church in Colossae, in Colossians 2, 2-3, where he desires that they and the believers in Laodicea, and us too, will attain to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, 
resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in every sphere. Relationship with Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, is the foundation of what it means to live Christ. MacArthur says again, The truth that is in Jesus, then, is first of all the truth about salvation. This idea is parallel to 1.13, Ephesians 1.13, where Paul says, Hearing the truth and being in him are synonymous with conversion. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed with him in the Holy, with the Holy Spirit of promise. The truth is in Jesus, and it leads to the fullness of truth about God, man, creation, history, sin, righteousness, grace, faith, salvation, life, death, purpose, meaning, relationships, heaven, hell, judgment, eternity, and everything else of ultimate consequence. As the Holy Spirit says in 1 John 5, 19-20, says, We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, and we know that the Son of God has come, and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. To have learned Christ, heard Christ, been taught in Christ, means that you have a relationship with him that is demonstrated in the life that you live. Imperfectly, yes, we get that, but ever more so sanctified by the faithful working of God through us in Jesus. Learning Christ is living Christ. You cannot know Jesus, follow him, and walk otherwise. The Christian's walk is learned and lived out in Christ this is eternal life, just as Jesus said in John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. To learn Christ is both to know him and the Father in intimate relationship, that as we continue to seek him, that relationship grows throughout our lives. It is not just religious knowledge, but living truth, in the living truth, Jesus. Learn, live, learning Christ leads to living Christ, which results in a changed life. And we read what that changed life looks like in Ephesians 4, 20-24. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. I've been meditating over those words for years now and still am struck with wonder when he says that we are made in the likeness of God created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. We'll discuss that more next week. My concern for you is that you know Jesus. 
And I don't assume that simply because you're sitting here, and maybe you've been sitting here for years, that you do know him. This is not just religious observance. This is not something that we do just to have fellowship with each other. This is about the most important thing in all of eternity, your relationship with God Almighty. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. If you don't know Jesus by faith, you don't have eternal life. If you do, it will transform everything about the way that you live. It will constantly be moving through your life, bringing you more and more to be like Jesus. That's justification and sanctification, and it's the process we go through until we die and are glorified in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I praise you and thank you for your word, and I believe that my brothers and sisters here do as well. And I pray that your work is being done in lives, in souls, and that for those who know in their heart of hearts that they have not yet surrendered, that they would, that they will, even now. Lord, the way we live in this culture tends to remove the gravity of the reality of our condition spiritually. There's something about it that tends to inoculate us from grasping the severity of the disease that we deal with that causes our eternal death, sin. And so I pray, Father, that you, through your Spirit, would move in hearts today to receive that gift of salvation in Jesus, to be justified, to accept by faith what Christ has done for us on the cross, through his death, burial, and resurrection, and to become new creatures, new creations in Jesus, to be saved. Lord, I pray too that you would also save us <clears throat> who know Jesus from the world, the flesh, and the devil and its ability, if we aren't careful, to have us meandering around and not living Christ. Please convict us, bring revival to the realities of who we are in Jesus. So that we, Lord God, put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. I pray that that will grip us through this week, Lord, as you press it into our hearts and minds, our very souls, that we'll come prepared to hear what that means and what it looks like. And sanctify us as we do. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Sound Purpose, a podcast by Brian Thompson, pastor of Purpose Church in Firestone, Colorado. If you've been encouraged by this broadcast, would you consider a tax-deductible gift? You may donate or find other information about Purpose Church through our website at purpose.church. Thank you for listening and be sure to join us next time for more life-changing teaching from Paul's letter to the Ephesians.